0: You're listening to the weekly podcast by Forest Hill Church. Here you'll find a place to grow in your faith, get to know what the Bible's all about, and hear what it looks like to follow Christ. To watch our services live or find the campus nearest you, visit foresthill.org. If you're a parent, search for our new Forest Hill Parenting Podcast and subscribe to get new content tailored just for you. Welcome, everyone, to Martin Luther King Weekend here at Forest Hill. Great to have you here. Um, I remember one of Dr. King's uh, most famous quotes. It was, forgiveness is not an action, it's an attitude. Forgiveness is not an action. It's not something we do. It's an attitude in our minds. And that's really important for us today as we're trying to learn how to get unstuck from human emotions that keep us captive. And, and that's what this picture up here means. You are here's the title of this series. It's looking at damaging human emotions and how we can be set free. We're here stuck in our emotions and we can't seem to move beyond them. Some of you may know that before I was called into ministry, I was two thirds of my way toward a PhD in psychology and counseling and God called me into ministry. But I was really involved in cognitive therapy at that point. And basically what that means is you are what you think. that that your feelings are controlled by your thought life, and if you want to change your feelings, change your thought life. So we want to help you through the Word of God to think God's way of being unstuck from these negative human emotions that just kill us. Last week, failure that leads to disappointment, and I taught you how in God's Word, He goes before us, and disappointment is His appointment to take us to a different place. So don't get mad at the rejection. See your rejection as God's redirection for your life. And this week, we want to look at the two problems of guilt that leads to shame. Guilt that leads to shame. And I I want to jump in now and say also, man, can you imagine what I'm feeling right now having my son pray for me? Wow. I mean, you you talk about a a, a deep feeling of movement of the Spirit as I watched my son, I held in my arms as a baby, grow up and be taller than I am and praying in the name of Jesus for a sermon. His dad, as he said, is getting ready to preach. So, Are you ready? Okay, let's get into it. Here's the whole thing with guilt and shame. To begin understanding it, you've got to go back to the gospel which begins with the Christian faith that believes there's one God in three persons. Not three gods, it's a mystery, yes, but one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they perfectly loved one another in this triangular relationship. They wanted to extend that love, so they created the angelic beings who loved them, and God loved the angels, and then the next concentric circle outward, God created humanity, created you and me in order for there to be love extended to us, and we would learn how to love God and love our neighbors. Again, imagine manifestation of extrapolation in love being God's heartbeat. And God made this universe, Genesis 1 and 2, perfectly where with Adam and Eve, they perfectly loved one another. They perfectly loved God. Everything was operating as God intended it to operate. And interestingly, at the end of Genesis 2, in the end of the creation narrative, you have verse 25, which says, And the man and his wife, Adam and Eve, were both naked and were not ashamed there was no shame that was a part of God's original intent okay so some of you know at some point there was an angel in heaven a luminary named Lucifer who rebelled against God took a third of the angelic beings with him who who became his demonic hordes and his job description is to destroy everything in God's created order So he comes to this earth and he tempts Adam and Eve no longer to be submissive to God and his will alone, but to be God's themselves. And he offered them fruit representative of that rebellion and Eve ate it, then gave the fruit to Adam and he ate it as well. Sins introduced into the world." everything's destroyed, love particularly. There's no longer perfect love between Adam and Eve. There's no longer perfect love between Adam and Eve and God. And there's no longer perfect order in creation, i.e., there are now tsunamis, hurricanes, earthquakes. And now they're the emotions that God created in Adam and Eve as good. They're fallen. And stuff like shame, which didn't exist in Genesis 2.25, now exists. And you see, interestingly, in Genesis 3... Verse 7, after Adam and Eve rebelled against God, created high treason against God, then the eyes of both were opened. They, they now saw their sin. They knew they were sinners. And then this phrase, and they knew that they were naked. They knew they were ashamed of their rebellion against God's moral standard. And what they do? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, at first glance, that's not a big deal, is it? Except here's what it represents. God was still pursuing them after their rebellion. He still was coming after them to recommence that love relationship. But what do they do? They sew loincloths and fig leaves and put it over their nakedness. Again, what are they doing? They're hiding from God. In their shame, they're hiding from God. They don't want God in their lives. They they, they, they are too ashamed to have him approach them. So shame, folks, comes from some standard that you and I feel like we've broken. Some of it's cultural, some of it's religious and moral, but it's there. And there are two places I want to turn you now to do an introduction and in how you can be set free from shame. Uh, There is a a doctor named Dr. Brene Brown. She's become very famous through her TED Talks, and she's done a lot of study in this area of shame. And she has some great insights I'm going to give you in just a minute, but she leaves out the most important, and that's the forgiveness of Jesus through the cross of Calvary. That's what will set you free from your shame. Let's look at a couple of verses together, out of reverence for the reading of the Scripture, if you're able. Would you now please stand? The verse that I'm using throughout this whole series on damaged human emotions is Luke four eighteen. Let me read it to you again. What God did in heaven, real quickly before I read it, he looked at our broken state, our shame, our guilt, all of our brokenness, and he didn't want us not to have a relationship of love with him. So at some point in human history, God the Father looked at God the Son and said, would you go? And the second person of the Godhead, Jesus, said yes and enshrouded himself, incarnated himself in human flesh. Birthed in a stable in Bethlehem to grow up and live righteously under the law that none of us can live in order to die on the cross. To take all our guilt, shame, disappointment, fear, anxiety upon himself to set us free. So Jesus, when he began his ministry, preached a sermon in a city called Capernaum. And his first verbal message was from Isaiah 61. He'd memorized the word of God. It was so important to him. And he preaches this message. Luke 4, 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. The third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit had come upon the son, Jesus incarnated in human flesh, because he, who's the he there? The Father has anointed me, he has chosen me to come to this earth to set us free, to proclaim good news to the poor, that's the physical poor, because folks, the honest truth I give you today is that the physical poor are more open to the gospel of Jesus Christ than the materially wealthy. It's just true. It's difficult, Jesus said, not impossible, but it's difficult for a rich man or woman to enter the kingdom of God. It's just hard because they depend upon money and the stuff of this world for their identity. And it's also, though, the poor in spirit who've come to realize their damaged emotions and they need a savior. He has sent me. Who's the he here? He is God the Father has sent me, the Son, to proclaim what, folks? Liberty to the captives that those of you who are captive in your human emotions and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are what oppressed he wants to set you free from your damaged human emotions especially guilt and shame the second section of scripture is from Luke the 7th chapter verses 36 through 50 this will all make sense in a moment i'll explain it to you One of the Pharisees, now the Pharisees were a group in Jesus' day who had identified 613 moral laws, and they felt like they lived by them every day, and anybody who didn't was inferior. So one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisees' house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city do I need to explain that? A woman of the city who was a sinner. That was her identity. She was a sinner. When she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment or or perfume, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment, with the perfume. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Can't you just see the snarled lip upward? She's a a sinner. Doesn't meet the standard. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, that's his name, the Pharisee, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Dear friends, that's true. The greater sinner you know you are, the more you love Jesus. If you think you've just got a little dab of sin, you're not going to love him much. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Are forgiven, for she loved me much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sin? Folks, that is the most important question you can ever ask. Who is this Jesus? Let me ask you a question: Who's the only person who can forgive your sins? Who? Only God can. I can't forgive your sins. I'm not perfect. Only the perfect being can forgive imperfection. So Jesus forgives her sins, a clear claim to deity. Who is this Jesus? Who is this man who who forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Again, for shame and guilt to exist, there's got to be some kind of standard. So with that in your minds, let me give you the two definitions of guilt and shame. Guilt says, I made a mistake. Shame says, I am a mistake. May I say that again? Guilt says, I made a mistake. It has to do with what I do. Shame says, I am a mistake. It has to do with who I am. And here's the truth. When you feel guilt, like you've broken some kind of standard, you're not living up, your, your performance-based living isn't high enough, you feel guilt, and if you don't deal with that guilt, it rummages deep within your soul, and ultimately it causes you to feel shame. It makes you feel like you're less of a person. It makes you feel like you're a mistake. Your identity is wrong. Now, in our culture, we have all different kinds of standards that people feel like they've got to live up to. Some of them are religious. Some of you came from toxic church environments where you've been told all your life you'll never measure up to God. And the terms that are used by preacher types are you must, you should, you ought. And you always feel like you never measure up. Guilt, then ultimately shame, I'm a rotten sinner, enters your heart. But it's not just religious and moral, though I think God has placed his moral law in our hearts. Romans 1 says so. And I think some of the guilt we feel is valid because we have rebelled against God. We have this sin nature that's a part of our lives. But a lot of it's imposed upon us by our culture. Madison Avenue has created for us what we've got to look like and to be in order to be accepted. You've got to have more possessions You've got to have this body appearance. If you don't look like this, you're not acceptable. And it pounds us throughout the day. We live in a performance-based culture. Some of your emotional toxicity and shame is rooted in your parents who told you you'll never measure up to anything. Why can't you be like, and usually it's a sibling, they compare you to. So, you're always trying to measure up to what mom or dad thought you should be, and you live in this chronic guilt which has led to shame. I feel inferior. Think about the proofs of that in our culture. Think about the aggression that's everywhere. What's the source of road rage? Who do you think you are? I'm right and you're wrong. And in some cases, people pull out guns to prove they're right. Bullying. Where does that come from? Except a person who feels inferior, who's trying to bully somebody to feel superior. Addictions. They're just contemporary fig leaves to medicate the pain that we feel in our inferiority. Suicide, profound and prolific among adults, the second largest killer of teens in our culture. What's the source? A teen who feels like, I don't measure up. And in their chronic pain eventually says, this is the only way I can get The shame to stop. Eating disorders. Gals, that's your attempt to live up to the standard of what beauty is in our culture. And, And even though you're thin as a rail, you look in the mirror and say, I must be okay. I look like the body image that our culture has shamed me to believe. Disconnection, the loneliness of our culture. There was a prolific, profound sociological academic work in the early 90s called Bowling Alone. And its study showed that as Americans used to bowl in leagues pre-1990, now most Americans bowl alone. We isolate ourselves from other people because we don't want them to see how shame-ridden we are feel think about it why do so many people try to control it's my pain of shame to control you so I don't feel like I'm not measuring up why do we blame other people all the time wouldn't you love to see people politicians and other figures alike just say made a mistake sorry but we just blame other people We can't accept it because it's too painful in our shame. But think about Genesis 3. Those of you who who know that in the fall, God was pursuing Adam and Eve, and he went first to Adam and said, Adam, why'd you do this? And remember Adam's response? What? The woman made me eat that fruit. (laughs) Then God goes after the woman. He says, Eve, why'd you do it? Remember her response? The serpent made me eat the fruit. Nobody can accept responsibility. It's just too painful amidst shame shame based living think about the civil discourse or lack thereof in our culture have you ever seen anything like it parties are entrenched in their views I mean it used to be there was some nuance that we could have some dialogue in our culture it doesn't exist anymore why because I can't dare admit you be right because that means I'm wrong and if I'm wrong the, the the shame is too much to handle. And then, of course, there's self-righteousness, which believes I'm absolutely right no matter what, and that's Simon the Pharisee, which we'll look at in just a moment. The shame of our culture, according to Dr. Brene Brown, is like a landfill, and it's so huge, it's cause poisonous roots to go outward and affecting all the other relationships and emotions we have in life. Shame is organized by gender in our culture. For women, for example, you've got to be Wonder Woman. You've got to work hard and be successful, climb up the ladder, no gender inequality. You've got to be a perfect mom, your kids be great. (laughs) You've got to look the role and be perfectly quaffed every day of your life because if you don't succeed by this standard that now culture's imposed upon you, you feel guilty, which leads to shame. And the truth is, in our culture, folks, women are using antidepressants and anti anxiety pills at hugely large levels more than have ever been used before. In a way, it's a fig leaf. I just can't meet the standard. I can't do it. And men, what's the one word that you're afraid to confront? Weak. Weak. So you buy into the American norm that I've got to keep working harder and harder to have more and more. And the truth is, nothing's ever enough. But you think if I just have more possessions, more power, more prestige, more privilege, then I'm acceptable to the culture and I'll feel good about myself. And you keep driving yourself utterly unable to meet that hole in your heart's needs, driving you deeper and deeper into shame. (laughs) And your wife calls you on it? And what's your answer? Look what I do for you. Oh, wives, you love that answer, don't you? All you want is for him to hear your heart and your concern. And so what do we do? We reduce our shame to performance. Look what I do for you. And the truth is we parents have passed on the toxicity often to our kids. Take it from one who's been there. Let me just address the dads, but this is for moms too. Are you driving your kids to be successful because of some vicarious attachment of your heart? Did your dad do that to you? Why is it that that we parents think that our kids have got to be ready to enter Yale when they're six years old And our sons have to be ready to play in the NBA or the NFL by the age of 12. It's craziness. And we communicate to our kids that you're only worth something if you succeed, if you meet the standard. You guys saw my son on the stage. He's taller than I am. I saw in an early age he had a basketball gift. Many of you know I played collegiately myself. And... My other son became a swimmer, and you know Bethany, praise God for her, didn't really show great athletic desires. But with my two boys, man, I started communicating to them that you're only loved if you succeed. And dads, let me give you two tips, and, and moms too, because this is getting increasingly problematic in our culture. Here are two ways you'll know if you're imposing a standard upon your children and causing maybe the toxicity of shame. First of all, what do you yell at them from the sidelines? That was the stupidest play ever. Why'd you do that? Or are they just words of encouragement and support? Second question, what's the first thing that comes out of your mouth when they get in the car after a game? Well, you didn't play very well today. Or, what do you want to do? And if it has absolutely nothing to do with sports, you go get ice cream. You can tell by what you yell from the sidelines and your first comments with your kids in the car where your heart is with performance-based living. And the Lord knocked me upside the head one day when I realized I was doing that to my boys. And in a time of profound moment with the Lord, he whispered to my ear and he said, David, you are their dad, not their coach, because I was endangering passing on to them the toxicity of shame-based living. So it's in our culture, it's everywhere, and, and some of us moral and religious, and a lot of us have screwed up and disobeyed God and messed up our lives. And here's what I want to tell you, a wonderful story about a woman of the night who had somehow probably seen Jesus beforehand do wonderful works of grace and maybe forgiven other people, and she knew she fell far short of what God wanted for her life. And she maybe had some pharisaical comments ringing in her brain too that you have disobeyed all the moral laws of God and she just felt ashamed well Jesus comes to Simon's house Simon's a wealthy powerful pharisee who believed he obeyed all the righteous requirements of the law what a crazy guy he was and They have a dinner together and in that day was in an open courtyard and and they would all recline on their elbows with their feet outward. So if you can imagine a hub of a wheel with the spokes going outward, that was Simon's house. He had food in the middle and all of his guests with the spokes coming outward lying on their elbows enjoying the meal. And when Jesus arrived, you can tell Simon was a little anathema toward Jesus. didn't greet him with... Oil on his brow, which was a way of cooling people down on a hot day. Uh, Didn't wash his feet, which was always done in hospitality for people visiting a guest. In that day, you wore sandals, which means your feet were gunky, muddy, and probably had some calluses and toenail fungus as well. (laughs) And out of the blue, Jesus doesn't receive any hospitality from Simon. A woman comes, and she starts weeping. Why'd she weep? She knew what Jesus meant when he said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The most blessed people who know God and his grace are those who've cried and wept over their sin. Who know they haven't met the standard and they're tired of trying and they just want to weep. And she comes in and starts letting her tears fall on Jesus' gunky, mud-filled feet. And then she lets her hair down, which, folks, was absolutely forbidden in that culture. It meant I'm a lady of the night. She owned up to who she was and what had gone on in her life. And she used her hair to wipe the tears off Jesus' feet. Then she takes an alabaster jar filled with ointment or perfume and anointed Jesus' feet with that as well. Now, now why is that important? What does a lady of the night need more than anything else? perfume so she'll smell good and attract well so in that moment what's she doing she's not only acknowledging that she's fallen far short of God's standard she's giving up her past life you see when you come to Jesus and get his grace and he frees you from shame-based living you leave your old life and you enter a new life well, Simon's ticked off that, that Jesus lets this happen. He says, if you were a true prophet of God, you'd never have let this happen. Jesus' response is a story. About two people, one owes 50 denarii, which is about three months' worth of work. The other owes 500 denarii, which is worth about three years' worth of work. The guy to whom the amount is owed realizes they can't pay it off, so he forgives them both. Jesus questioned to Simon, the self-righteous prig. Which one feels more forgiven? And Simon answers, the one that the 500 was forgiven. And Jesus said, you've chosen rightly. Because the more you've been forgiven, the more you love. Now here's what Jesus didn't say that I think he was saying. That the one who really had the 500 denarii debt was not the woman, but Simon. You're aware, aren't you, the one sin that will send you to hell, the one sin that God cannot forgive is your pride, your self-righteousness. To think you've met the standard. To think you're fine. To think you're great. The truth is the sins of the flesh are not as grave as the sins of the spirit. All of this woman's sexual infidelities didn't begin to compare to Simon's pride. He's the one that had the huge debt that he wouldn't let Jesus touch. And then, of course, Jesus says to her, woman, your sins are forgiven. Only God can do that. Jesus pronounced forgiveness, gave her new life Your faith has made you well. Now, now what's so fascinating, if you look at this story, you see that Jesus' answer to shame-based living is forgiveness. Dr. Brene Brown, as much research as she's done, has offered some solutions that are helpful, but she doesn't get to forgiveness. Though she has some kind of church background, she was raised in a Church of Christ environment. I think she got beat up by religion and doesn't understand grace. I've heard she's beginning to understand grace. She offers some suggestions for overcoming shame. I want to include them now with the most important one. Here's her first offer to overcome shame. Vulnerability. Vulnerability. What's vulnerability? It's basically this. God? What am I doing? The first step, folks, in overcoming shame is to say, God, I am a messed up moral fellow man, I've screwed up and I bought the lie of this culture, I've disobeyed your moral law. You won't get well until you go to the party and you fall at the feet of Jesus and weep and let down your hair, admit who you are, and break from your past. The second step is not Dr. Brown's mind. After this, it's forgiveness. letting Jesus speak to your heart and say, I see the worst in you. (laughs) I know the worst in you. And I forgive you. That through the cross, you nailed your shame, your guilt upon that cross. And you receive from him the gift of grace. The gift of forgiveness. Third step. Empathy. Your first empathy is from God who says, I I understand. But you know where else empathy is supposed to happen? In the church is in our life groups, in our relationships. So that when you do this to another follower of Jesus, what does the other follower of Jesus do? This? No. That person in response to us, I'm a screw-up, too. I don't have your shame, but let me tell you my shame. And then the church becomes a colossal collection of free people who used to walk in shame. Maybe a counselor you need to talk to, but you got to do this, and the person in return goes... So there is vulnerability, forgiveness, empathy, and then you gotta learn how to discern the voices because even after you have grace and you know Jesus' love and acceptance, there's this strange voice that keeps trying to speak to Christians. And amazingly, it has a southern accent, <laughs> sounds remarkably like my own. And it tries to do this You sorry rascal. You say you've received Jesus' grace and you still are stuck in your negative emotions. You still misbehave sometimes. And when that happens, folks, and it happens regularly with me, so it's got to happen with you. When it happens, you've got to remind The devil, the evil one who hates you, still wants to destroy you, these biblical truths. First of all, John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he came to die for you. Then John 3.17 says, for God did not send his his son into the world to condemn the world. What's another synonym for condemn? What is it? Shame. God did not send his son into the world to shame you, but in order that the world might be saved, delivered through him. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation. What's another synonym for condemnation? What is it? Shame. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no more shame. So if you feel a voice inside of you speaking to you about your shame, you know where it's coming from. Because Jesus will never, ever try to shame you again, ever. Ever. And then finally, worthiness. You are worthy to God. You are his son or daughter, adopted in his family. You're not a mistake. You need to train your brain to say to yourself over and over again to get out of this stuck shame syndrome I am not a mistake. Turn to the person next to you right now and say, I'm not a mistake. Right now, do it, please. I am not a mistake. Now, turn to me. Say it to me. I am. One more time. I am. You're not a mistake, folks. If you love Jesus, you're not a mistake. You have worth in his sight. How much? Well, let me conclude with this. I'm going to ask if if you guys would dim the lights. I want to take you through five major doctrines of the faith with pictures. And I really believe if you believe in Jesus and you believe in His Word and you believe the right doctrines of the faith, and you make that the way you think, you train your brain that way, you'll get unstuck with all of your negative human emotions, not the least of which is shame. So please, before you leave today, consider the cradle. Consider the cradle. If you were the only person on this planet, God the Son would have still come for you. That's how much he loves you. Contemplate the cross. Jesus lived the righteous life none of us could live. He met the standard. He knew we couldn't because of our sin condition, but he met the standard so that as we believe in him, We receive that standard by grace through faith, the forgiveness of God. If we've appeared before him right now, he'd declare us not guilty. Your sins are forgiven. He'd remember them no more. And if you tried to remind God of all your shame-based stuff, God would say, I distinctly remember forgetting that. Claim a crown. The resurrection proves you can't keep a good God down. The resurrection proves the cross is true. The resurrection proves that grace conquers shame. And you've now been adopted into the family of God. You wear a crown. You're not a prostitute. You're a princess. You're not a perp. You're a prince. That's the meaning of the resurrection. You have a new identity. Shame has passed away. A new identity has come ascertained the ascension. Jesus was ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of the Father. And interestingly, Ephesians 2.6 says that all of us who believe in him and our lives are in him and his life is in us, we sit there with him. How can you be a mistake if you are sitting with Jesus right now at the right hand of the Father ruling over all creation? And finally, see the second coming. <laughs> He's coming back. And if you're still alive, it's to take you home. If you die before then, you go home. Why? Because you're a son and daughter of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You have royal blood pulsating through your veins. You are not a mistake. You're not a mistake. Dear friends, in the name of Jesus, you are forgiven.